Let's turn in the Word of God to Psalm 16. We'll read the whole psalm, and the whole psalm will likewise be the text for the sermon. Psalm 16, preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Beloved in the Lord, as we approach Psalm 16 tonight, you will notice that the heading of the psalm before verse 1 is a miktam of David. That term miktam, Hebrew word, is a word the meaning of which we don't entirely know for certain. It's close to the Hebrew word for an engraving or a writing, and that's perhaps the meaning. It also shares some resemblance with the Hebrew word for gold. And in fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was used in the day of Jesus and the Apostles, The name of that translation is the Septuagint. That Greek translation has that interpretation of the heading. Psalm 16 is a golden psalm, a precious psalm. Now regardless of what the meaning of miktam may be, that is true. This is a golden psalm. Beautiful, lustrous, glorious, precious And as we've read it a moment ago, you felt that, didn't you? How every verse and each word is laden with meaning that comforts the soul. It is a golden psalm. Beautiful in every one of its words. Glorious in the concepts that it lays forth. We don't really know much about the background of Psalm 16. There seems to be trouble somewhere in the background and that David begins with a prayer, Preserve me, O God. And as we get closer to the end of the psalm, he speaks about death. And perhaps David wrote this when he thought death was imminent or perhaps later in his life when death was coming. But what is strikingly absent from this psalm 
is the feeling of fear, the feeling of distress, the feeling of terror, the feeling of confusion. Rather, Psalm 16 is a psalm in which every verse resounds with confidence and the joyfulness of the man, of the woman, whose trust is in God. The one who knows God is my God. Now and forever, my refuge, my fortress, my rock, my portion, my inheritance, my life. It's a psalm which, like the cup in Psalm 23, runneth over to confidence and joy. Thus, it's a beautiful psalm for us to consider tonight. It's a psalm given to us by God to strengthen our faith. To build us up in confidence. To renew us in joy. A psalm to be sung on the path of our pilgrimage. Focus is especially upon what we find in verses 5 and 6. Here you can say this is really the heart of this psalm. Our goodly heritage that we have in God. But now, before we get into the psalm, we must see that the key to unlocking the richest treasures of this golden psalm is to recognize that this psalm of David is not, first of all, a psalm of David. Yes, the Spirit inspired David to write it. Yes, this psalm arose out of certain historical circumstances and experiences in David's life. And yes, David confessed this psalm. And yes, these words are true for David. And as they are true for David, they are true for us as well. This is the believer's psalm. But first and foremost, this is Jesus' psalm. Psalm 16 is another of the messianic psalms. And one of the most marvelous things about Psalm 16 is that every single verse of this psalm can ultimately be applied to Jesus Christ. He is the speaker. He is the figure who is front and center in this psalm. Psalm 16 is Jesus' psalm. And that's why the comfort and the confidence and the joy that this psalm brings to us is certain and sure. Because it's based on Jesus. And what he has done. This interpretive key to Psalm 16 is given us elsewhere in the scriptures. I point out Acts chapter 2 a moment. Acts chapter 2 verses 25 through 32. It's striking that Psalm 16 is one of the first Bible passages selected to be preached upon in the New Testament. This was one of the Bible passages upon which the Apostle Peter based his Pentecost sermon. And Peter by the inspiration of the Spirit, identified the interpretive key to this psalm. While it is David's psalm, it is first of all Christ's psalm, and it is a psalm that speaks of Christ and His life. Let's read together a moment, Acts 2, beginning at verse 25. For David speaketh concerning him, that is, concerning Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Peter quotes 
a large portion of Psalm 16, and now in verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, would raise up Christ to sit upon his throne, he seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. Peter finds Christ in this psalm. And though Peter especially focuses on the end of the psalm, Peter's interpretation and way of interpreting the psalm applies to the rest. And we're going to see that tonight as we go through the psalm together. There are so many rich ideas, you could have a sermon on each verse of the psalm, but we're going to take the same approach that we did a few weeks ago when we looked at Psalm 121. There's some value in looking at this psalm as a whole. And so the whole psalm will be our text tonight, and our theme is delighting in our goodly heritage. A little different from the bulletin, I made a few changes after I sent it in. Delighting in our goodly heritage. Let's notice first our confession. Secondly our confidence. Our confidence that arises out of the truth of this psalm. Which we confess. And then finally. The outcome. Of confessing this truth. And being confident in it. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Psalm 16 is the believer's confident, joyful confession of faith. And this is a beautiful, a golden confession of faith. The psalm begins that way, with a confession. The first words are a brief supplication. You'll notice the first couple words, verse 1, Preserve me, O God. But then very quickly the psalmist rushes to his confident confession of faith in God. For in thee do I put my trust. And in verse 2, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my God. That's a confident confession. Thou art my God. And this confession comes to its climax in verses 5 and 6, where David says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. That's what David is focusing his eyes on. This goodly heritage that he has. And that fills his heart with comfort and joy. And so, what is this goodly heritage that Psalm 16 sets before us? A goodly heritage. That word goodly means beautiful. It means precious. It means glorious. It means everything conducive to your flourishing. Really, all that belongs to that word good is packed into this word goodly. Our goodly heritage. Her heritage is an inheritance. Those words are roughly synonymous. An inheritance is a portion of property or wealth that Perhaps parents or some other family member designate for one of their descendants. And usually upon the death of the parent or the family member, that portion of property or wealth is passed down to the designated heir. That's an inheritance. And the glorious truth that the psalm sets before us here is that, beloved, you're an heir. 
Every single one of you believers in Jesus Christ are an heir. An heir of a goodly heritage. A glorious, beautiful, wonderful inheritance. And all that belongs to the word good is crammed into that inheritance. A goodly heritage. Not from your earthly father or earthly relative. But from God. There's Old Testament background behind the language that the psalmist uses here. And the background is God's dividing of the land of Canaan among the twelve tribes as their inheritance. You remember that history recorded in the latter half of the book of Joshua. The land that God had promised to Abraham, God gave at his appointed time to Israel. And through the conquest of Canaan, that land came into Israel's possession. And then God divided Canaan among the twelve tribes, not randomly, but according to Lot. God caused the lines to fall unto each of the twelve tribes, determining the lot, the portion of land they each would receive. And that was not a random process, but God, who governs the falling of every lot, or the casting of every lot, determined this. God gave a certain portion to each of the tribes of Israel. And every family within Israel received their own portion within their tribal allotment. And the lines fell unto Israel in pleasant places. Each Israelite family receiving a portion of that land which flowed with milk and with honey. But we understand from the scriptures that God's giving of Canaan as an inheritance to his Old Testament church was ultimately a type and a picture pointing to something greater and better. Canaan pictures the heavenly inheritance which God has obtained for his people through the victorious conquest of the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. Something far better than a plot of land flowing with milk and honey but a place in heaven and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness doth dwell and where the fullness of glory and fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are found. That's the inheritance ultimately that is set before us here by the text. That's the goodly heritage which Canaan was only a faint picture of. And that explains why each Israelite family's portion in the land of Canaan was so important to them. In the Old Testament, that portion of Canaan pictured and represented their place in God's covenant in His kingdom. And they're living on that land, serving God on that land, bringing forth the fruits of the earth and giving them as an offering to God, pictured their life with God, enjoying His inheritance. And so while the psalm draws on this imagery of the division of the land of Canaan among the tribes of Israel, that's not what the psalmist ultimately has his mind resting upon, but something far better. All of those Old Testament pictures were meant to direct the faith of God's people heavenward. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 16 when David says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. He is going from the pictures to the reality. And using the language of the picture to describe the far greater reality. And you see that, do you not? What's most amazing about verses 
5 and 6. Not Canaan is my inheritance. Not even Jerusalem and the throne of Israel is my inheritance. The Lord. The Lord Jehovah himself is the portion of mine inheritance and my cup. God is my inheritance. And God is the one who maintains my inheritance. That's why the lines are fallen unto me in such pleasant places. Not just a piece of land that flows with milk and honey. Not just kingship. Not just riches. But the lines have fallen unto me such that God himself is my heritage. He gives himself to me that I may glorify him forever and enjoy him forever. The psalmist is exulting in the reality that he has God as his God. That he belongs to God as his child. That he has life with God already now. And can look forward to endless life with God in ages to come. Dwelling with God. Beholding the beauty of God. Enjoying God. Enjoying the riches of his covenant. That's his inheritance. That's what he looks forward to. That's what he fixes his eyes of faith and his his heart upon. That's why the heritage is so goodly. The heritage is the good God Himself. The only good. The overflowing fountain of all good. Indeed, God, the giver of every good and perfect gift, is Himself the greatest gift that He gives. He takes His people for His own. And gives himself to the people he has taken for his own. And that brings us back to the heart of the covenant promise that God spoke throughout the ages. Think of the promise God gave to Abraham. I will be your God. I will be your heritage. In Genesis 15 verse 1 God says. I am thy exceeding great reward. That's the picture here. God, God is the heritage, the inheritance of his people. Is there anything more wonderful than that? Is there anything more extraordinary, anything more to be desired than that? And so we see, beloved, that our portion, our inheritance, our heritage, that which we are to yearn for, that which we are to cherish, that which we are to seek, that which we are to delight in above all, is nothing here below. None of the riches of this world, none of its pleasures, none of its experiences, the best this world has to offer, even a piece of ground that flows with milk and honey, that makes you rich such that you can have everything that you want. It is nothing in comparison to this goodly heritage. All creatures perish with the using. Riches grow themselves wings and fly away. And even that which you can keep in your barns like that man in Luke 12 and store up for the time to come will do you no good on the day of your death. And you take nothing with you. Everything else that says, I am your portion, I will be your inheritance, is perishable, empty, and ultimately vain. The usefulness and the profit of earthly things is only found in using them in the service of the one true God 
and the one and only good, truly good heritage that we have. The center of our life should be God. He is our goodly heritage. He's the one that makes anything good. That's why heaven will be so good. Because God is there. And that's a thought to really take away from this psalm. As wonderful as all of God's blessings are. Ultimately, our chief and only good is God himself. As wonderful as it will be to live in heaven, to be in the new heavens and the new earth, it would mean nothing if God wasn't there. If we didn't have God, if we weren't connected to Him, if we didn't have a relationship of love and friendship with Him, and that's what God gives us through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why the lines have fallen unto us in pleasant places. The lines of God's eternal counsel, when He chose each of His own in love, set His love upon them in eternity, and determined to redeem them with the blood of His Son, To gather them into the fold of his church. To rain upon them all of the blessings of his covenant. The lines are fallen unto us in pleasant, pleasant places. That's the heart of the text. Now, a few more details can be added to this main idea. Really, the verses that compose the first half of the psalm, leading up to verses 5 and 6, all add a layer of detail. They unpack The goodliness of our heritage. So let's quickly go through those other verses as well. In verse 2, the psalmist says, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. Verse 2 highlights and underscores that this inheritance, the inheritance of God's people, is our chief and only good. And there's nothing else for us to desire beside our God. My goodness extendeth not to thee. That's a somewhat unclear expression as it is translated in our King James. There's a a couple possible ways to interpret this. We have to identify what my goodness means. And then what the phrase extendeth not to thee means. There's two possibilities for how to interpret my goodness. In the first place, it can mean the good I receive from God. The second possibility is the good that I perform unto God in the service of God. And the phrase, extendeth not to thee, can be read, it doesn't reach thee. Or it can be read, it doesn't exceed thee. So we put that together and we have two possible ways to understand this phrase. The first way is this. The the psalmist is saying, all of the good that I do cannot reach God. In the sense that it cannot add anything to Him. It cannot contribute to His greater glory. There's no goodness that I perform. None of my goodness can ever merit anything with God or indebt Him to me. Now that's certainly true. The Bible teaches that everywhere. But that doesn't seem to be the point of this expression here. After all, the focus of Psalm 16 is on our goodly heritage, the good that we receive from God. And so the second interpretation of this phrase is better. 
The second interpretation goes this way. My goodness refers to all of the good that God gives me. And when the psalmist says, my goodness extendeth not to thee. What he's saying is, my good doesn't come from anywhere else. My good doesn't go beyond God. There's nothing in addition to God that is good for me. There is no good for me that is apart from God. In other words, as our Psalter says so very well, Thou art my chief and only good. That's the idea. The psalmist is confessing that, expressing it, rejoicing in this reality. God is my God and God is the source of all good. He is all sufficient and therefore there is nothing good apart from Him. There is nothing good beside Him. From Him, with Him, in Him, I possess all good and lack nothing. And therefore having God, I am rich. Though I may be poor in this world, I have glory. Though I may be as lowly as can be in this world, I have all. It's really expressing the same idea as at the beginning of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I have all. And it brings out this truth then. That our inheritance, our goodly heritage, our portion, which is God, fellowship with Him, and all of His blessings, this is what truly, deeply, And fully satisfies the inmost yearnings of the human soul and heart. We yearn for what is good. Not by nature, of course. By nature, man hates the good. Loves sin. Pursues sin. But as God's people, we yearn for what is good. And God is the only one who can satisfy that yearning. He is our chief and only good. Having this inheritance then, we have every ingredient of true happiness. However deprived, however impoverished, however afflicted we may be in this world, and we don't minimize the hardships, the pain of those things. But what a comforting truth that whatever our earthly circumstances may be, this truth abides. The Lord is my portion, the portion of my inheritance and my cup. I have a goodly heritage and my goodness extends nowhere farther than that. There is no good beside my God. I am full. I have all. I'm happy. I am content in the Lord. As a different psalmist, Asaph would express in Psalm 73, 25-26, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My heart and my flesh faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is this your confession, beloved? Is this mine? Let it be, for this is the foundation of true contentment and happiness. The Lord is my portion. I have a goodly, goodly heritage. The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Then going on to verse 3. But to the saints that are in the earth, and the excellent in whom is all my delight. There's a very interesting transition here. From verse 2, the psalmist is extolling the fact that all good is found in God. 
And having God as my God means I possess all good. And his thought quickly transitions from there to the saints. That is, God's holy ones. God's set-apart ones. Those who have been saved by grace and belong to God. To the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent. There's his name for the saints. They are the excellent of earth. In whom is all my delight. From contemplating his goodly heritage, the Lord, David's thoughts go to the Lord's people. The co-heirs of the same goodly heritage. And this too fills his heart with joy and delight and brings satisfaction to him. I have a goodly heritage and I have goodly friends. I have goodly companions. I have these co-heirs of the grace of life who together with me are passing through this world to inherit the same inheritance. And I love them too. I delight in them too. My eyes see what the world's eyes do not see. The world looks at the saints and sees a lowly people. Sees a people that is insignificant perhaps. But David sees even in the lowliest true believer in Israel. A brother, a sister. And David can go so far as to say, in them is all my delight. You can imagine how his sentiments here in this psalm would have prompted him to exert himself to be compassionate, just ruler in Israel. He genuinely loved God's people. That brings out an important connection. As we delight in the goodly heritage, as we delight in our God, the necessary fruit of that must be a delight in God's people who are co-heirs with us and we can even say also a part of our goodly heritage. Included in our goodly heritage is the fullness of covenant life with God. And that covenant life is not only vertical, me with my God, but it is horizontal, me with all of my fellow saints redeemed in the blood of Christ. Delighting in our heritage means delighting in the communion of the saints. And the applications then roll out of this, do they not? Just as we are called not to chase after some other fake inheritance in this world, earthly riches, whatever it may be, let us not set those things above God. Let us with David be a companion of all them that fear the Lord. Let us delight in God's people. Let us unite ourselves to God's people. Let us delight in the assembling of ourselves together with God's people. Let us take a special interest in the saints as part of our goodly heritage. Christ does, should not we? The communion of the saints is so sweet and encouraging and upbuilding. How much good does God bring to us through the communion of the saints? How much of our human bickering and infighting would be resolved if we thought about this a little more? How much of it is shown to be petty in light of the grand truth of this psalm? Let us all be able to say, in them is all my delight. In them, in these, the saints of earth. Not some great... Hero of the past who we might adore, who we might think very highly of. 
That's fine. We esteem the saints of the past. But let us not be a people who love the saints of the past, but fail to love the saints on earth, whom God puts in our life here and now. David says, in them is my delight. Part of delighting in our heritage is delighting in the saints. Lastly, verse 4 David goes on to say, Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take their names into my lips. You see how this connects with everything that's gone before it and what follows it. The Lord is David's portion, the Lord is his God. He delights in God, he delights in God's people, and that means. He renounces everyone and anything that would be a contender for God's place in his life. He proclaims his absolute loyalty to God, which requires the complete renunciation of every idol. My portion is not God and, because my goodness extendeth not to thee. There is no good apart from, in addition to, or beyond God. The Lord alone is my portion. And thus here David expresses that loyalty, that devoted love for God, which manifests itself in that he will take no part in the false worship of the heathen. He refers to a common rite of heathen worship where blood was offered as a sacrifice to appease the gods, to cajole them into blessing you. And David says, I'll have no part of that. I will not even take the names of their gods into my lips. The idea there is not that David had some superstition that he feared if he would just say the name of a heathen god, it would somehow bring down judgment upon him. The idea is he will not take the name of their gods into his lips to give them any recognition, to give them any honor, to supplicate them, to praise them, or to acknowledge them in any way because he is devoted to the Lord. And so the text presses down the soil upon the application that was made earlier. Don't look for your happiness, your contentment, your satisfaction, your purpose, your meaning in life. Fill in the blank. In something else other than God. He is your portion. We can think of idolatry this way. Idolatry is looking to anything else beside God. To be your portion. To be your inheritance. David points out. Those who hasten after other gods. Their sorrows will be multiplied. Because idolatry brings down the just judgment of God. But also every vain idol will ultimately disappoint the one who serves it. And the more people hasten after their choice idols. The more they exert themselves in the service of that idol. Whether it's Baal or whether it's their belly. They will be disappointed and left empty. Let us confess with David, Lord is my portion. I desire none but thee. Let us not hasten to idols and unto the multiplication of our sorrows. Whatever that idol might be that tempts us. Wealth, pleasure, 
Whatever it may be. That's not my portion. God is my portion. And joys shall be multiplied unto the one who hastens after God. Now to to finish up the confession. The first point. Let's come back to what was brought up in the introduction. The fact that this beautiful psalm of David. This beautiful psalm that belongs to every believer. Is first of all Jesus' psalm. Because ultimately these words too are Christ's words. And before this confession can be in your mouth and in your heart, it had to first be in Christ's. And only because of Christ can these words be true for you and me. Jesus was sent into the world to be the the Savior, the second Adam. And the lines of God's eternal counsel fell unto Him in pleasant places. Yes, as He was appointed to be the mediator of the covenant. It was eternally ordained for him that he should assume flesh and suffer and die for his people. But how pleasant were the lines that fell unto him because after suffering came glory. A goodly heritage was ordained for him. Ultimately, God is the portion of the man Jesus Christ. And we see that at Jesus' exaltation, he receives his portion, he receives his inheritance as the firstborn among many brethren, that he might confer that same inheritance upon his own. That's why Romans 8 says we are joint heirs with Christ. None of us have a portion with God. None of us have an imperishable inheritance apart from him who is the heir. And we are joint heirs with him. Jesus, throughout his entire earthly life and ministry, said, My goodness extendeth not to thee, O Lord, thou art my Lord. He was the most loyal, devoted servant of the Lord. It was his meat to do his Father's will. He never wavered. He perfectly obeyed. He served and loved the Lord with all his heart. He looked to the Lord for all good and delighted himself in the Lord and was satisfied in God, content in all things, though he experienced suffering like no other ever has or ever will. He was the man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief, and yet he was also the perfectly joyful Lord because the Lord was his portion. Knew the inheritance that he would win and obtain and be and bestow upon his people through his work as the Christ. Jesus never hastened after another God. He was the perfect worshiper. No other God was upon his lips. And even when the devil tempted him to turn from the pathway of the cross, I'll give you the whole world if you just bend the knee for but a moment. Jesus said, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Never was there any room in Jesus' heart for any but his God and the people that he would redeem. That people he joined himself to, even though he is the Holy One, he is the Excellent One, he took our sins upon himself. Because in his unmerited and unfathomable love, he delighted in his saints, who are no saints of themselves, who of themselves are worthy of condemnation, but he delighted in them and would make them his saints through the shedding of his blood. And so he took their sins and he washed them in his blood. 
He clothed His people in His righteousness. He sanctifies them by His Spirit such that this psalm can say of David and God's people throughout the ages, we are saints, the excellent of earth. Not of us, but of Him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sorrows would have been multiplied eternally, but Jesus took them and Jesus suffered His sorrows to be multiplied Throughout his life, culminating on the cross and the shedding of his blood, that we might have his goodly heritage. That's our Savior. Let us be loyal and devote, devoted to him. Let us take no other name upon our lips but the name of Jesus Christ, the one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Well, that's the substance of the psalm. The goodly heritage of God's people. And the truth of this psalm then brings confidence, does it not? That was the effect for David. The contemplation of his goodly heritage filled him with confidence. You have confidence. True confidence when you go through life knowing with certainty that you have this goodly heritage and that your portion is the Lord. That, that confidence jumps off the pages in so many ways. The language the psalm uses, the, the repetition of the first person personal pronouns Read through Psalm 16 again sometime and count all of the eyes and the mys and the mine. The psalmist writes as someone who knows everything he writes about is for him personally. There's not some goodly heritage out there for some other people, but it's mine. And he knows it. He knows it by that spirit-kindled faith. He knows it from the Word of God. As verse 7 points out, the the psalmist says, I will bless the Lord. I'll thank the Lord. He's given me counsel. Where does God give us counsel? In His Word where He speaks to us and applies that Word by the Spirit. God's counsel that comforts us is the Word of the Gospel. And that Word is hidden in David's heart so that he says, My reins. Talking about His bowels, his inner organs, which in the Hebrew conception was the the seat of feeling and thought at times. His, His innermost being instructs him in the night seasons. That is, the word of God that's implanted there is a continual source of instruction and comfort even in the night seasons, the hardest times of life. He is confident, confident, steadfastly so. He knows his God. He knows the God who is his portion. So you go back to verse 5 and you look at the part we haven't talked about yet. Thou maintainest my lot. That's confidence. The Lord who is my inheritance. The Lord who has redeemed me for His own. The Lord who gives Himself to me and takes me unto Him. He will see to it that I never lose this inheritance. That's the idea. Thou maintainest my lot. The Lord will never leave me or forsake me. 
He will never disinherit me. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8 says. And that means nothing can separate us from our inheritance. Because our portion is the Lord. The great I am that I am is my goodly heritage. That can't change. It can't change any more than the I am that I am can change. The Lord maintains our lot against every assault on our heritage. Whether it be the devil's temptations. Whether it be the world's pressures. Whether it be me wrestling with my sinful nature and losing the battle at times, or so it seems. Giving in to temptation, giving in to sin. Walking down that path of sin. The Lord maintains my lot. He's the one who eternally ordained those lines to fall unto me in pleasant places. His counsel will not be undone. He is the one who sent Jesus Christ, the firstborn of many brethren, into the world to obtain this inheritance by the shedding of His blood so that God might be our God and we His people. He will never suffer the work of Christ to be undone. He maintains my lot. And therefore, in all of life, even when we're facing our fiercest foes and going through our hardest tribulations and wrestling with sin so mightily, we can say verse 1 of this psalm, we cry out, preserve me, and we need to pray that, we need to cry out to God, preserve me, but we can follow it immediately with this confession, this confidence, for in thee do I put my trust. Thou maintainest my lot. That's confidence for here and now. Right now. Everything. In everything. When we're afraid, when we're struggling, verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me. I look to Him. Rivet the eyes of faith upon Him. Who He is. What He's done. Set Him before you. That's what David did in his times of greatest need. He set the Lord before him. And God, by His Word in Spirit, pressed upon David's heart the comfort that the Lord is at His right hand. Protecting Him. His shield upon His right hand. I shall not be moved. David was not moved. You shall not be moved. But now we come to the last verses of the psalm. The last verses of the psalm bring everything together. Bring everything to a conclusion. And do so on a high, high note. The confidence that this psalm breathes is a confidence not only for this life and everything that goes on in this life, but it is a confidence that extends to the end of life and indeed extends beyond the grave. It's confidence in the face of the last enemy, death. Verses 9-11 through 11. As David has contemplated the reality, I have a goodly heritage. The contemplation of that heritage allows him to say this. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Has there ever been a more confident, victorious, even joyful statement in the face of death than that? I rejoice and my flesh rests in hope. That's the confidence that only springs from the soul of the one who belongs to Jesus Christ and whose eyes of faith are fixed upon Him and whose mind is stayed upon His God and who knows I have this goodly heritage. Whatever may betide here below, even when death and its gloomy shadows come, I stare death in the face with confidence and joy, and I say, my flesh rests in hope. That's what God's grace gave David to confess. That's his confidence here. He knew his God. The God who was his portion forever. Death can't separate me from my God or from my portion. If the eternal God is my inheritance, I will enjoy him eternally. If the almighty God has given himself to me to be my portion, how can weak little death take my God from me? Impossible. I shall surely partake of life And immortality. My God will not leave my soul in hell. But will take my soul to be with him. To enjoy my inheritance. Nor will he abandon my body in the grave. To be lost to corruption. David had hope of resurrection. Because by faith David knew. I belong to my God. Body and soul. In life and in death. And nothing can ever permanently separate any part of me from my God. and My inheritance. So he looks ahead to what is yet to come. And his glory rejoices. As he thinks about the fullness of his portion. The fullness of his inheritance. Which he describes in the very last verse. What will The full enjoyment of our portion, our goodly heritage be fullness of joy in God's presence before His face. Living with Him. Beholding Him face to face. Pleasures forevermore at His right hand. Endless in their variety. Endless in the fullness of the satisfaction they bring. Perfect joy. So David's As it were says, death, do your worst. All you can take from me is my sin, my suffering, and my sorrow. And the only place you can deliver me to is the presence of God. Fullness of joy. His right hand. Pleasures forevermore. That's your hope, beloved. All who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your hope. This is your confidence in the face of aging, of sickness, 
of surgery and its uncertain consequences, in the face of the death of a loved one, in the face of the discovery of an unexpected diagnosis, cancer, whatever it may be, on the face, in the face of your own death, this is what you can say with confidence. My glory rejoices. My flesh rests in hope. God will not leave my soul in hell. Nor will he suffer. Me to see corruption. The Lord is my portion. My goodly heritage. And Like the first part of the psalm, the only reason you can say this is because it was true of Christ first and foremost. In the introduction we saw that Peter quoted this section of the psalm and applied it directly to Christ. And we can see that in a couple of ways now. First, the confidence of this psalm, the confidence that we feel and that we hear in every word of this psalm was the confidence of the Lord Jesus Christ as he pursued the ministry and the work the Father gave him to do. Jesus was a confident Savior who was the perfect man of faith ever trusting in His Father. His trust never wavered. Jesus always set the Lord before Him. The Lord was ever at His right hand. And when Jesus' flesh was weak, still Jesus confided in His Father. How often Jesus went to His Father in prayer. Think of when the angels came to minister to Jesus at His temptations. And in Gethsemane, in His most trying hour, Jesus ever set the Lord before him. And Jesus knew, trusted, the Lord would maintain his lot. Through suffering he would enter glory. And for the joy set before him, he would endure the cross. And even when the bloody drops of sweat fell into the soil of Gethsemane, Jesus' flesh Rested in hope. The Lord was his portion. The Lord maintained his lot. Then the end of the psalm. Ultimately these words talk about Christ. Because for him alone. They are fully fulfilled. As Peter points out. David died. And his body went into the grave. And his body saw corruption. Now David looked past that. By faith he saw the coming resurrection. That his body would not be lost to corruption. Yet nonetheless. David's body decayed in the grave. As will ours. There is one alone. The Holy One. Who did not see corruption. Jesus Christ. Whose soul God did not leave in hell. After three hours of darkness upon Calvary, hell had spent itself. Nor did Jesus' body see corruption in the grave. For after three days, God brought him forth in glorious life and raised him from the dead. God showed to Christ the path of life from the cross, through the grave, into God's presence in fullness of joy, into pleasures forevermore at his right hand. The glorification of Christ our head. The portion of Christ. And this brings us our goodly heritage. This is why our flesh can rest in hope. In the certain hope of our coming resurrection. Because of Christ. Because of Christ.
your soul will not be left in hell. Because of Christ, though your body will see corruption just for a little while, God will bring it back and restore it and make it like unto Christ's glorious body. That's our ultimate hope. Our confidence in Him. And so let us rejoice. Let that be the the ending effect of Psalm 16 upon us. Indeed, that is the intended effect. Notice how the psalm begins and how the psalm ends. It begins with David's prayer, preserve me, and then quickly moves on to the body of the psalm, which emphasizes the confidence that we have in God. And now the psalm ends with joy. Fullness of joy. Presence of God. Today, let our hearts be glad and our glory rejoiceth. Let our whole being thrill for joy. Because the lines have fallen unto us in pleasant places. The word of the gospel gives me counsel and upholds me throughout the night seasons. I have a goodly heritage. I have the saints the fellowship of God's people, the excellent of earth. The world and all of its transitory joys pass away and will leave empty, but I don't need them because I have this eternal ground of rejoicing. I have my God, my portion forever. I belong to Christ, in whom I am eternally secure. And this night season of this life will swiftly pass and give way to the fullness of joy which shall unfurl more and more into eternity future. What a heritage we have. What an inheritance we look forward to. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for our goodly heritage. Words fail to describe it. May our hearts be glad in it. And may this psalm comfort us and give us confidence to continue on life's pathway, rejoicing in Thee and looking forward to the fullness of joy to come. Amen.